History Reread, November 2021. The Futurist Manifesto. You are very welcome to this podcast, History Reread. On the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history. Something familiar that many of you will already have read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read, or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating that text, audio book style, either in full or abridged form. This month it is The Futurist Manifesto by Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, which appeared in the Paris newspaper Figaro on February the 20th, 1909. And the reread is prompted by the following headline and story. Italian Futurists Rome Apartment, A Total Fusion of Art and Life by Thea Howlin taken from the Art Newspaper, online on the 23rd of June, 2021. The apartment in question is that of the artist Giacomo Balla, his place of residence for the last 20 years of his life up to 1958. The interior design of the property looks far less dynamic if applying the basic tenets of futurism as laid out in the manifesto by Marinetti. The geometric shapes, the splash of pastel colours share nothing of the excitement of movement or celebration of the machine, nor either the cleansing nature of war as championed by Marinetti in the manifesto but the apartment as a private space says everything about the joys of the artist's work as a futurist. It was Bala who remained loyal to the iconographic aspects of futurism, if not the initial machine-inspired idea long after others had abandoned them. The article discusses the apartment restoration project in the following terms, quoting from the curators Pietromacci and Dardi. On the fourth floor of an apartment building on Via Oslava in the Prati quarter of Rome, a small flat holds within it a world of colour, pools of crimson, shards of yellow, orbs of aquamarine home to the leading Italian futurist Giacomo Balla from 1929 until his death in 1958. Caesar Balla was his canvas and a showcase for his ideas of a total art in which creativity infiltrates every aspect of life. Reconstruct the universe by making it more joyful, Balla wrote in a 1915 manifesto. When he moved to Via Oslava, he began by decorating his own surroundings in vibrant patterns, walls, furniture, objects and all. In keeping with the wishes of Bala's family, the living space has been turned into a museum to both celebrate the artist's life and preserve the painting of the walls and various pieces of furniture, not only by Bala himself, but by his daughters Elika and Luci, up until 1993, when the last of the family to survive Elika died. In 2004, it became a national heritage site, but work on restoring it for the benefit of the visiting public did not start until 2019. It has been open to the public since the summer of this year, 2021, and is currently accessible as part of a retrospective of Bala's work at Rome's Maxi Museum. National Museum of 21st Century Arts Futurism and Overview Futurism fueled Italian fascism aesthetically. Its Russian variant inspired a workers' revolution and then ameliorated the early years of communism for an erstwhile bourgeois class that then had to behave itself in keeping with proletarian principles. 
Futurism was about capturing the movement of the machine in art at immeasurable, still more unimaginable levels of speed prior to the Industrial Revolution. It also concerned the violence implicit in the impact of industrialization on society and the manner of man needed to operate industrial machinery. There was, moreover, the wider application of machinery in relation to a possible pan-European war. For as long as all these things were thought of as essential elements needed to break with a moribund past, futurism served a political purpose. However, futurism has now become more than an addendum to the discourse around art history. It has become central to it in a way that the original futurists, Marinetti in particular, would have despised. We will look at the cultural setting of early Italian fascism in more detail presently based on what we understand so far about futurism. Futurism, War and Fascism, The Necessary Context when Marinetti wrote the Futurist Manifesto, there was a mood of nationalism in Italy, with the authorities making clear certain frustrations over outstanding verbal promises by Britain and France concerning territories of the Ottoman Empire. The Italian intelligentsia, no less Marinetti, largely concurred. There were grievances dating back to the Congress of Berlin, which was about settling the balance of power among the major European powers, Russia, Great Britain, France, Austro-Hungary, Italy and Germany. Russia also felt that Britain and France had reneged on agreements coming out of the Congress concerning a pan-Slavonic Balkans. The Balkan question was not to go away. Both Italy and Russia had become excited by the possible spoils coming their way from the sick man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire. Both saw a groundswell of nationalism. Both adopted on the artistic fringes the futurist movement with more ardour than any other country. The former maintained its nationalist stance post-World War I. The latter contorted similar sentiments in order to perpetuate communism in one country first, when the internationalist dimension to world revolution failed, with Britain maintaining a monarchy, France a republic, and Germany becoming a social democratic republic. If the magnitude of the First World War needs any more emphasis than it generally gets, we can say that the conflict in fact started in 1911 when Italy attacked Libya, then a part of the ailing Ottoman Empire. This was an act of war that was both a foreshadowing of the nationalism evident from the Axis powers in World War I and of the military nature of 20th century war generally, the perceived redundancy of cavalry, traditionally the elite of army land forces, aerial reconnaissance and then attack from the air not quite bombing yet, with the bombardier pilot removing the pin of the hand grenades with his teeth before dropping them from his Austrian-made Tauber monoplane. The First World War is generally well enough addressed academically as well as in podcasts and YouTube channels. However, Italy's part in this conflict requires looking at briefly. Italy remained neutral for roughly the first ten months of the war. Fearing sympathies with Germany, the Treaty of London of 1915 
was conducted in secret in order to bring this country into the war on the Allied side, promising it territories of the already decrepit Austro-Hungary. As a result of the Treaty of London, Italy immediately declared war on the Habsburgs in Vienna, but delayed doing the same in relation to the main Axis power, Germany, whose vigour stood in stark contrast to the lameness of the German-speaking Austrians, the dominant force in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The resentment that the Italians caused in the corridors of power, Whitehall, the Elysee Palace, and later the U.S. State Department, was carried over by these major powers into the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. The issue came to a head when three of the big four at this conference, U.S. President Wilson, the Prime Ministers of France and Britain, Clemenceau and Lloyd George, respectively, refused to fulfil the terms of the London Treaty to the fourth big player, the Italian Prime Minister Orlando whose reduced status at the conference and the diminishing of Italy as a major power played into the hands of the politically extreme right back in Rome. Orlando was a liberal on the political spectrum. After his fall from power in June 1919, None of his successors, variously from socialist and liberal factions within the political elite, would hold on to power for more than a full year until the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini took over the levers of state control in October 1922. He was a self-proclaimed intellectual with no credentials as a parliamentary politician. As a young man, he had fled to Switzerland, avoiding conscription, working manually, developing socialist ideas. On his return to Italy, he set about a career as a journalist and eventually found a voice as a radical thinker. His socialism and opposition to the intervention in Libya discussed earlier brought him to the editorship of Avanti, the main socialist newspaper in Italy. However, his support for the First World War split the socialist movement in Italy. Mussolini was expelled from the party and lost his position at Avanti. He volunteered to fight in the Great War, ostensibly for the sake of his country's honour. Discharged from the army, having been wounded, Mussolini returned full-time to journalism, although since 1914, following his work on Avanti, he had been proprietor of what was to be the essential organ of the fascist movement in Italy. This was the People's Italy. Here, the manifesto of the fascist struggle, or simply the fascist manifesto, was first published on June the 6th, 1919. It was co-authored by Marinetti and the national syndicalist Alcesti de Ambrose, much under the supervision of the paper's owner. Filippo Marinetti and Giacomo Balla also fought for their country's honour, a deed much easier to regard as a selfless act on both their parts than on that of the self-serving Mussolini. Yet of the two artists, only the writer was overtly political. The painter was much more interested in the commedia of life. We will come to this presently. Where Marinetti was proto-fascist, Vladimir Mayakovsky was revolutionary communist. Both firmly believed that only violence could bring about political and social change. In the case of Mayakovsky, we will come to this too. The Contradiction of a House Museum Celebrating a Futurist Artist the brevity of the last of the ten theses of the Futurist Manifesto makes it easily quotable. 
We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. The fact that so much effort has gone into preserving Bala's apartment for posterity as a museum somewhat goes against the grain of the manifesto, at least in part. That it has been preserved at all has not amounted to a work undertaken towards a futurist end. It was merely an act of curatorship highlighting art undertaken in the name of futurism. Anyone attending a motorsport event with levels of speed and driving manoeuvres on display that would not be permitted on the public highway would be acting more in keeping with the spirit of futurist ideals than a visitor to Bala's place of residence would. House museums are not uncommon in Moscow, and the idea of having an artist's domestic arrangements put on public display often yield insights into their art. For instance, Vladimir Mayakovsky's one-room living space in communal quarters, which have been reconstructed in the museum that bears his name in Moscow. It, at least spatially, represents his reduced circumstances by 1930. Although it gives little indication of how he lived, we will turn to his life in more detail later, it does seem apposite as far as being a mock-up of the place of his death, his probable suicide. Firstly, because those who claim he was murdered, based on inconsistencies in eyewitness accounts and police records, cannot possibly further claim it as a crime scene, and so treat it as a shrine. And secondly, because it stands as a kind of set, it presupposes still or motion photography and theatrical performance. In other words, the multimedia facet of Russian futurism, and even more so the constructivist and suprematist movements that came out of futurism. The former, with its focus on the purely material, endured beyond the revolution. The latter, with a greater accent on the metaphysical, did not. The actual exhibits, manuscripts, artwork, newspaper clippings and the like in the rest of the Mayakovsky State Museum seem dull and uninspiring by comparison, stolid and respectable in the way of things exhibited in the mid-nineteenth century, stolid and in keeping with party strictures, in the way of things exhibited in the mid-twentieth century. Its relevance to present-day creatives. Modern smartphone cameras have all manner of devices to recreate the iconography of movement established by futurist painters. Moreover, the concept-based multimedia nature of art in the 21st century, with installations rather than room-on-room -room hangings of traditional painterly works of art, is part of its legacy. The Turner Prize in the UK owes much to the multimedia exhortations of the Futurist Manifesto, although the very name of the award, after J. M. W. Turner, perhaps Britain's greatest painter, suggests avant-garde continuity rather than revolutionary change. The four joint winners in 2019 were Lawrence Abu Hamden, who works with sound, Helen Kamok, whose installations involve many of the plastic arts as well as writing and the spoken word, 
Tai Shani uses film and photography along with ancient texts in relation to Freudian ideas of sexuality to explore questions of identity. And fourthly, Oscar Murillo, whose installation work is collaborative and specific to the location in which it occurs. He is also a painter who reads extensively about the Western art tradition, so avoiding a position of ignorance when subverting it in his work on post-colonial migration and trade. The prize was cancelled in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. Instead, 10 artists were given bursaries, one of whom is Orit Ashri, an Israeli-born artist. Their performance piece of 2014, The World is Flooding, was based on Mystery Booth a Mayakovsky play written in 1921 for the fourth anniversary of the 1917 revolution. Although about 21st century issues, its non-academic approach to performance with volunteer participants rather than trained actors, sometimes reading their lines from scraps of paper, sometimes fluffing them from faulty memory, here speaking into a microphone with some awareness of technique, there speaking far too close to it, All this is very much in keeping with the inclusive intentions of the artist. Now let's look in detail at Marinetti's manifesto in the run of artistic development in the first quarter of the 20th century without further delay. Etienne Yule Marais and Edward Meyerbridge If we take Bala's perhaps most popular painting, Dynamism of a Dog on a Leash, from 1912, we can see the influence of chronophotography, which was a kind of proto-kinematography, or cinematography minus the gate that allows for the persistence of vision between frames as projected out, giving the impression of uninterrupted motion. Chronophotography was invented in 1878 by Edward Meyerbridge in relation to the movement of a horse. As an end product, it amounted to no more than a postcard with 12 inset images of the equine gait, or stride, its full cycle in incremental stages. These frames were captured by 24 cameras placed alongside a racetrack, the horse triggering the exposure as it comes into view of the lens in each case. With the development of the motion picture camera in 1895, Maybridge's images could more easily be related as a seamless repetitive movement. However, another scientist, Etienne Yule Marais, whom Meyerbridge met and inspired, wanted to capture movement too rapid for the human eye to discern. He invented a kind of gun that could shoot, in a filmic sense, the moving image laterally across a two-dimensional background. These were usually of creatures like cats and chickens also racehorses following Meyerbridge's example. In addition to equine athletes, he also captured human runners and jumpers. Much of this experimentation was done the year before the emergence of the Lumiere camera projector. By the time Bala came to paint The Dynamism of a Dog on a Leash in 1912, cinema had already established itself as a popular form of entertainment, in turn influencing the plastic arts. 
However, it was not cinema that informed Bala's efforts in painting dynamism in two dimensions. It was Marais' blurred images from nearly a generation earlier, showing the trajectory of a high jumper, revealing much about the body posture and necessary muscular contortions the high jumper has to assume that could not be seen by the naked eye. Despite this technology being less sensational for the ordinary viewer than motion pictures, it was Marais' work that underpinned iconographically the representation of dynamism in Bala's painting of the dog and its walker. The body and head of the one and the coat and bottom half of the other are rendered figuratively pretty much impressionistically in black. But the blurring of the legs, human and canine, and the swishing of the dog chain show clearly the influence of Murray. We will come to the Cubist influence presently. Cubism Murray and Meyerbridge were forced by the primitive equipment at their disposal to treat living things, animals, as moving shadows, as it were, flattening them against a plain backdrop in order to capture their motion. Cubism offered an alternative way of representing figures and objects. Following Impressionism and the use of colour, reminding the viewer that painting can be more than just the rendering of a classical narrative, there was a move away from the academic painting of the Paris Salon and its prescriptions as to good and bad taste. Cubism was not a return to perspective and exact foreshortenings in relation to the vanishing point for the sake of narrative. Rather, it was a way of painting that came about around 1907-1908. It was practiced by the artists Pablo Picasso and Georges Braque both wanted to incorporate the experience of the viewer who embodied the moving eye. Before Picasso and Braque, there were suggestions of a more three-dimensional way of representing reality on a two-dimensional support, that is to say canvas, but not always just canvas, of course. This was found in the paintings of Paul Cézanne during the post-Impressionist period. In, for example, his still life with apples and a pot of primroses, the table is shown as tilting or raked towards the viewer in order to better represent the apples. However, according to the laws of physics, the fruit would simply roll off the table. Another influence was African masks, something that Picasso incorporated into his painting of 1907, La Zoom de Masks in tribal cultures expressed greater interest in the spiritual essence of something than in its outer appearance. For example, the representation of a face of a hunter-gatherer would carry outlines of the animal that was hunted. Thus, the symbiotic relationship between hunter and hunted was acknowledged. The Cubist works of Picasso and Braque juxtaposed different views of objects or figures within the same picture. To the uninitiated, their pictures appeared fragmented. To others more familiar with still and motion photography as technologies, the apparent level of abstraction was justified in order to show multiple perspectives presupposing movement, as well as time, the time it takes the moving eye to discern movement. This prepared the ground for the development of futurism. 
Russian futurism came about as a result of the Moscow-based literary group Gilea publishing a slim volume of prose and poetry called A Slap in the Face of Public Taste. The group had been around since 1910, instigated by the painter David Berliuk and his brothers. Others followed, more notably Vladimir Mayakovsky a year later. The Russian Futurist Manifesto is essentially a preface to this volume. It is similar to Marinetti's manifesto in that it demands the rejection of established literature for the sake of new art forms as multimedia. The group also included artists Mikhail Larinov, Natalia Goncharova, Olga Rosanova, and most notably Kazimir Malevich. Collectively, they were the Russian Cubo-Futurists, no mere borrowers from Italian Futurism. In fact, on a promotional lecture tour to Russia in 1914, Marinetti was snubbed by those he took to be his artistic peers. Where Italian Futurism exalted the machine, Russian Futurism was more about the folk traditions of the country. In this, there was much more of a spiritual dimension to Futurism in Russia, which tied it more closely to French Cubism than to Italian Futurism. If we remember the influence of masks on Picasso in the period immediately preceding his Cubist experiments with Braque. Part of the Gelea movement only briefly, Melevich survived the period of futurism as it morphed into constructivism, which he despised and dismissed as sterile in relation to the human spirit, focusing solely as it did on geometric forms denuded of any metaphysical aspect. He maintained an affinity with suprematism which brought him international fame and which the Soviet authorities tolerated under sufferance for most of the rest of his life. He died in 1935 before the more psychotically disturbed of the Moscow show trials began. If Italian and Russian futurism have any intersection, it cannot be found in similarities between, on the one hand, the Leninist period and the early Stalinist period in Russia, and, on the other, the Mussolini regime in Rome prior to 1938 but rather in the eventuality of Stalinism and Nazism as the ultimate subordination of the human to the machine, now simply the machinery of state and the leader's will as to its operation. Totalitarianism Coming back to the question of futurism and its surviving reputation in conclusion without any delay. In direct contradiction to the manifesto's fascist outlook, futurism has now become a bourgeois staple of the conservative art scene. Although now largely understood in relation to painting and sculpture, the manifesto discussed prose and poetry at this point it could be argued that Marinetti was a failed writer and that the Futurist Manifesto was something of a publicity stunt. He had had little success with the drama for the stage performed in Paris the same year as the Manifesto appeared, and similarly he was disappointed with an attempt at writing a novel a year later. He enjoyed considerably more success with Zhang Tum Tum, a sound poem based on his experience of reporting on the Italo-Turkish war for a French newspaper. This was the intervention in Libya already discussed. 
The very title suggests the onomatopoeic nature of the material, something over and above semantic meaning. From the visual aspect, it might also be described as concrete poetry in that the graphemes and their typographical representation were more important in conveying meaning than verbal utterance. At about the same time in Russia, a number of artists, including Vladimir Mayakovsky, were mounting their own assault on the artistic conventions of the day, producing something similar to Marinetti's Zang Tum Tum with typographic experiments and nonce sound patterns. This was Pashochina Obshesvenamu a slap in the face of public taste. Mayakovsky remains the poet of the Russian Revolution, not only due to his pre-revolutionary involvement with futurism, his Byronesque lifestyle, his contribution to the plastic arts, particularly film and graphic design, his poetry almost Pushkin-like as far as its impact on the Russian language was concerned, but also because of the love poetry he wrote for his muse Lilia Brick, when an already disillusioned revolutionary. The reputation of this later material was promoted by lackey critics to suit Stalinist purposes after the writer's suicide in 1930. Despite Marinetti's efforts as a poet and writer of prose, it was the painters Amberto Boccioni and Giacomo Balla who gave relatively more impetus to the futurist movement in Italy, and their work has better survived. For example, Three Women, 1909-1910 by Boccioni, the figurative content of which has little to do with the dynamism of futurism as expressed by Marinetti. Street light painted by Balla in 1909, but dated a year later, is far less figurative apart from the ease with which the lamp itself can be made out. However, both works point forward towards futurism and backwards to the Italian divisionist painters. The landscapes and portraits of Emilio Longoni and the epic pictures of Giuseppe Palizza da Volpiedo, particularly the fourth estate which became the signature image of Bernardo Bertolucci's film masterpiece 1900, made in 1976. The starting point of divisionist painting may be found in the optical and chromatic ideas developed by scientists, especially by the French chemist Michel-Eugène Chevrel. The sense of colour happens upon the retina as a hue not recognisable on close inspection of the disparate colours in the form of the tiny dots or points applied to the support or canvas. The unity of colour one sees is an amalgam of these colours in these dots or points. Futurism has helped maintain a certain interest in this earlier divisionist movement. However, as a style, generally it is more firmly associated with the neo-impressionist French painter Georges Seurat. As mentioned earlier, modern gadgets, especially smartphone apps, allow us to recreate the iconography of movement established by futurist painters. Experiments in sounds and typographies have fared less well. 
the stream of consciousness poetry of Gertrude Stein, for example, and its repetitions, which was influenced by Cubism as much as by Futurism, did not last beyond the author's lifetime. Later experiments, such as James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, remain largely unreadable. The works of Samuel Beckett in French and English remain on the fringes of stage performance, not so much due to a lack of popularity, but more so because none on its own is long enough to constitute an evening in the theatre. Futurism was able to reinvent a kind of visual grammar in terms of iconographic representation for the looker-viewer, where, for the reader, the written word has generally remained wedded to certain systematic conventions, that is to say, not always to the Greco-Latinate-Hebraic traditions of grammar and syntax. Only in early Soviet Russia was Futurism both a popular literary movement as well as one involving the plastic arts, principally painting and sculpture. Yet... Once the civil war in Russia was decisively a matter of red victory, the revolutionary ingredient in futurism that had sustained it hitherto was no longer of any use to the Soviet authorities. The one area where it did have something of an afterlife was in the theatrical innovations of Vsevolod Meyerhold and his theories of movement biomechanics as needing to be in plastic unity with stage scenery. Vladimir Mayakovsky was a frequent collaborator. The play Klopp the Bug, with music by Shostakovich, was one of the highlights of this early Soviet period, artistically sometimes regarded as a silver age following the golden age of Pushkin a century earlier. However, by the time of an official state policy of socialist realism in 1929, there was little of the futurist agenda being practiced in Russia that could avoid being dismissed as decadent. Many of the surviving Cubo-futurists, having moved on artistically, were now living abroad. The Futurist Manifesto by Filippo Tommaso Marinetti He starts by celebrating his experience of a car crash. We have been up all night, my friends and I, beneath mosque lamps whose brass copulas are bright as our souls, because, like them, they were illuminated by the eternal glow of electric hearts and trampled underfoot our native sloth on opulent Persian carpets. We have been discussing right up to the limits of logic, and scrawling the paper with demented writing. Our hearts were filled with an immense pride at feeling ourselves standing quite alone, like lighthouses, or like the sentinels in an outpost, facing the army of enemy stars encamped in their celestial bivouacs, alone with the engineers in the infernal stoke holes of great ships, along with the black spirits which rage in the belly of rogue locomotives, alone with the drunkards beating their wings against the walls. Then we were suddenly distracted by the rumbling of huge double-decker trams that were leaping by, streaked with light, like the villages celebrating their festivals, which the Po in flood suddenly knocks down and uproots, and in the rapids and eddies of a deluge drags down to the sea. 
then the silence increased as we listened to the last faint prayer of the old canal and the crumbling of the bones of the Murabun palaces with their green growth of beard suddenly the hungry automobiles roared beneath our windows come my friends i said let us go at last mythology and the mystic cult of the ideal have been left behind we are going to be present at the birth of the centaur and we shall soon see the first angels fly we must break down the gates of life to test the bolts and padlocks let us go here is the very first sunrise on earth nothing equals the splendor of its red sword which strikes for the first time in our millennial darkness we went up to the three snorting machines to caress their breasts i lay along mine like a corpse on its bier but i suddenly revived again beneath the steering wheel guillotine knife which threatened my stomach a great sweep of madness brought us sharply back to ourselves and drove us through the streets steep and deep like dried-up torrents here and there unhappy lamps in the windows taught us to despise our mathematical eyes smell i exclaimed smell is good enough for wild beasts and we hunted like young lions death with its black fur dappled with pale crosses who ran before us in the vast violet sky palpable and living and yet we had no ideal mistress stretching her form up to the clouds nor yet a cruel queen to whom to offer our corpses twisted into the shape of byzantine rings no reason to die unless it is the desire to be rid of the great weight of our courage we drove on crushing beneath our burning wheels like shirt-collars under the iron the watch-dogs on the steps of the houses death tamed went in front of me at every corner offering me his hand nicely and sometimes lay on the ground with a noise of creaking jaws giving me velvet glances from the bottom of puddles let us leave good sense behind like a hideous husk and let us hurl ourselves like fruit spiced with pride into the immense mouth and breast of the world let us feed the unknown not from despair but simply to enrich the unfathomable reservoirs of the absurd as soon as i had said these words i turned sharply back on my tracks with the mad intoxication of puppies biting their tails and suddenly there were two cyclists disapproving of me and tottering in front of me like two persuasive but contradictory reasons their stupid swaying got in my way what a bore Puh. I stopped short and in disgust hurled myself, vlan head over heels in a ditch. Oh, maternal ditch, half full of muddy water, a factory gutter. I savoured a mouthful of strengthening muck which recalled the black teat of my Sudanese nurse. As I raised my body, mud-splattered and smelly, I felt the red-hot poker of joy deliciously pierce my heart. A crowd of fishermen and gouty naturalists crowded terrified around this marvel. With patient and tentative care, they raised high, enormous grappling irons to fish up my car, like a vast shark that had run aground. It rose slowly, leaving in the ditch, like scales, its heavy coachwork of good sense and its upholstery of comfort. 
We thought it was dead, my good shark, but I woke it with a single caress of its powerful back, and it was revived, running as fast as it could on its fins. Then, with my face covered in good factory mud, covered with metal scratches, useless sweat, and celestial grime, amid the complaint of stared fishermen and angry naturalists, we dictated our first will and testament to all the living men on earth. The Manifesto of Futurism 1. We want to sing the love of danger, the habit of energy and rashness. 2. The essential elements of our poetry will be courage, audacity, and revolt. 3. Literature has up to now magnified pensive immobility, ecstasy, and slumber. We want to exalt movements of aggression, feverish sleeplessness, the double march, the perilous leap, the slap, and the blow with the fist. 4. We declare that the splendour of the world has been enriched by the new beauty, the beauty of speed, a racing automobile with its bonnet adorned with great tubes like serpents with explosive breath, a roaring motor car which seems to run on machine gun fire is more beautiful than the victory of Summerthrice. Five. We want to sing the man at the wheel, the ideal axis of which crosses the earth itself hurled along its orbit. 6. The poet must spend himself with warmth, glamour, and prodigality to increase the enthusiastic fervour of the primordial elements. 7. Beauty exists only in struggle. There is no masterpiece that has not an aggressive character. Poetry must be a violent assault on the forces of the unknown to force them to bow before man. 8. We are on the extreme promontory of the centuries. What is the use of looking behind at the moment when we must open the mysterious shutters of the impossible? Time and space died yesterday. We are already living in the absolute, since we have already created eternal, omnipresent speed. 9. We want to glorify war, the only cure for the world. Militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of the anarchists, the beautiful ideas which kill, and contempt for women. 10. We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. 11. We will sing of the great crowds agitated by work, pleasure, and revolt, the multicoloured and polyphonic surf of revolutions in modern capitals, the nocturnal vibration of the arsenals, and the workshops beneath their violent electric moons, the gluttonous railway stations devouring smoking serpents, factories suspended from the clouds by the thread of their smoke, bridges with the leap of gymnasts flung across the diabolic cutlery of sunny rivers, adventurous steamers sniffing the horizon, great-breasted locomotives puffing on the rails like enormous steel horses with long tubes for bridle, and the gliding flight of aeroplanes whose propeller sounds like the flapping of a flag and the applause of enthusiastic crowds. It is in Italy that we are issuing this manifesto of ruinous and incendiary violence by which we today are founding futurism. 
because we want to deliver Italy from its gangrene of professors, archaeologists, tourist guides, and antiquaries. Italy has been too long the great second-hand market. We want to get rid of the innumerable museums which cover it with innumerable cemeteries. Museums, cemeteries, truly identical in their sinister juxtaposition of bodies that do not know each other. Public dormitories where you sleep side by side forever with beings you hate or do not know. Reciprocal ferocity of the painters and sculptors who murder each other in the same museum with blows of line and colour. To make a visit once a year, as one does to see the graves of our dead, once a year, that we could allow. We can even imagine placing flowers once a year at the feet of Gioconda. But to take our sadness, our fragile courage, and our anxiety to the museum every day, that we cannot admit. Do you want to poison yourselves? Do you want to rot? What can you find in an old picture except the painful contortions of the artist trying to break uncrossable barriers which obstruct the full expression of his dream? To admire an old picture is to pour out sensibility into a funeral urn, instead of casting it forward with violent spurts of creation and action. Do you want to waste the best part of your strength? In a useless admiration of the past, you will emerge exhausted, diminished, trampled on. Indeed, daily visits to museums, libraries, and academies, those cemeteries of wasted effort, culveries of crucified dreams, registers of false starts. It is, for artists, what prolonged supervision by the parents is for intelligent young men, drunk with their own talent and ambition. For the dying, for invalids, and for prisoners it may be all right. It is perhaps some sort of balm for their wounds, the admirable past, at a moment when the future is denied them. But we will have none of it. We, the young, strong, and living futurists. Let the good incendiaries with charred fingers come. Here they are. Heap up the fire to the shelves of the libraries. Divert the canals to flood the cellars of the museums. Let the glorious canvases swim ashore. Take the picks and hammers. Undermine the foundation of venerable towns. The oldest among us are not yet thirty years old. We have, therefore, at least ten years to accomplish our task. When we are forty, let younger and stronger men than we throw us in the waste paper basket like useless manuscripts. They will come against us from afar, leaping on the light cadence of their first poems clutching the air with their predatory fingers, and sniffing at the gates of the academies the good scent of our decaying spirits, already promised to the catacombs of the libraries. But we shall not be there. They will find us at last one winter's night in the depths of the country in a sad hangar, echoing with the notes of the monotonous rain crouched near our trembling aeroplanes, warming our hands at the wretched fire which our books of today will make when they flame gaily beneath the glittering flight of their pictures. They will crowd around us, panting with anguish and disappointment, and, exasperated by our proud, indefatigable courage, will hurl themselves forward to kill us. 
with all the more hatred as their hearts will be drunk with love and admiration for us and strong healthy injustice will shine radiantly from their eyes for art can only be violence cruelty injustice the oldest among us are not yet thirty yet we have wasted treasures treasures of strength love courage and keen will hastily deliriously without thinking we are all might until we are out of breath look at us we are not out of breath our hearts are not in the least tired for they are nourished by fire hatred and speed does this surprise you it is because you do not remember being alive standing on the world's summit we launch once more our challenge to the stars your objections all right i know them of course we know just what our beautiful false intelligence affirms we are only the sum and prolongation of our ancestors it says perhaps all right what does it matter but we will not listen take care not to repeat those infamous words instead lift up your head standing on the world's summit we launch once again our insolent challenge to the stars the russian futurists a slap in the face of public taste a volume of poetry and prose prefaced by the following to our readers an unprecedented unexpected first we alone are the face of our time the horn of time is trumpeting through our lingual arts the past constricts us academia and pushkin make less sense than hieroglyphics dump pushkin Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, etc., etc., overboard the ship of modernity. Those who don't forget their first love won't recognize their last. Who would trustingly turn their last love to Balmain's perfumed lettery? Does it reflect the vigorous spirit of today? what coward would fear to tear the paper armour from the warrior brusov's black tuxedo or does it shine with unknown beauties wash your hands that have touched the filthy slime of books written by countless leonid andreevs all those maxim gorky's kuprins blocks sologubs resimovs remisovs Avachenkos, Cornies, Kuzmins, Boonins, etc., need only a dacha on the river, thus fate rewards tailors. From the height of skyscrapers, we look down on their sorry asses. We order the reverence of poets' rights to enlarge the scope of the poet's vocabulary with fabricated and derivative words word novelty to insurmountable hatred for the language existing before their time to wrench with horror from their proud brows the wreath of cheap fame you have made from bathhouse switches to stand on the rock of the word we amidst seas of booze and outrage and if your filthy stigmas of common sense and good taste are still present in our verses they nevertheless glimmer with the first heat flashes of the newly approaching beauty of the word sufficient and valuable unto itself the manifesto of the fascist struggle or more commonly the fascist manifesto italians here is the program of a genuinely italian movement it is revolutionary because it is anti-dogmatic strongly innovative and against prejudice 
for the political problem, we demand a universal suffrage polled on a regional basis with proportional representation and voting and electoral office eligibility for women. B. A minimum age for the voting electorate of 18 years, that for the office holders at 25 years. C. The abolition of the Senate. D. The convocation of a National Assembly for a three-year duration for which its primary responsibility will be to form a constitution of the state. E. The formation of a National Council of Experts for Labour, for Industry, for Transportation, for the Public Health, for Communications, etc. Selections to be made from the collective professionals or of tradesmen with legislative powers and elected directly to a general commission with ministerial powers. For the social problems we demand a. The quick enactment of a law of the state that sanctions an eight-hour workday for all workers. b. A minimum wage. c. The participation of workers' representatives in the functions of industry commissions. d. To show the same confidence in the labour unions that prove to be technically and morally worthy as is given to industry executives or public servants. e. The rapid and complete systemization of the railways and of all the transport industries. f. A necessary modification of the insurance laws to invalidate the minimum retirement age. We propose to lower it from 65 to 55 years of age. For the military problem, we demand a the institution of a national militia with a short period of service for training and exclusively defensive responsibilities. b. The nationalisation of all the arms and explosive factories. c. A national policy intended to peacefully further the Italian national culture in the world. For the financial problem, we demand a. A strong progressive tax on capital that will truly expropriate a portion of all wealth. b. The seizure of all the possessions of the religious congregations and the abolition of all the bishoprics which constitute an enormous liability on the nation and on the privileges of the poor. c. 